In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Today is the eighth day of the festal season of Christmas, and the day that uh, we celebrate Jesus' circumcision and being named. It is the day that he fulfills the law that is given uh, to the people of the Lord on Mount Sinai. You'll remember that so we are up on Mount Sinai after the Lord had first given the Ten Commandments to Moses. And you'll remember that while he's up on the mountain, he's there for 40 days and the people uh, forget and think that uh, he's not coming back and that they're going to have to find some other God to worship. And so uh, you'll remember that when Moses comes down, he finds them already having broken the first of the two of the commandments, right? Uh, they have abandoned the Lord their God and they've made an idol. They've made this golden calf that they're worshiping. And so you'll remember that in his anger, Moses throws down those tablets. And so now he's uh, gone back up onto the mountain. The Lord is again instructed that only Moses is to go up. The people are not to ascend. And he again gives the Ten Commandments to Moses and begins this outpouring of the law. That is instruction on how it is that the people are to live, how they're to uh, organize their hearts and their minds, how it is that they're supposed to worship the Lord. And uh, as he does this, he instructs them in his own character. So the Lord doesn't just give a set of, of laws that the people are supposed to follow in some kind of way um, separate from the Lord, but they're given this call to uh, be in relationship with the Lord. And the Lord tells them about who he is. And he does this first off by giving them his name. If you look at the text before you here from Exodus chapter 34, you'll see several times uh, we see this name, the Lord, and you'll see that it's in all capitals. The tradition in English translations of the scriptures is that when Lord is in all capitals, that is standing in place of the name of God, which in Hebrew is YHWH, the tetragrammaton, they call it, the four-letter word. The ancient Hebrew doesn't have any vowels, and so we're left with these four letters, and they're, they're told not to speak this name. And so instead of writing YHWH, we get Lord in all capitals. So whenever you see that, you know that it's the name of God being given. Some English translators at various times have tried to say that this, uh, they've tried to add vowels and say that it's uh, Yahweh or Jehovah, uh, but the ancient Israelites wouldn't say it, and they wouldn't try to include any vowels themselves. So he first gives his name to the people, uh, showing this intimacy, showing this relationship that he wants to have with them, and then he gives them several uh, aspects of his character. Uh, starting at verse 6, he says that he's merciful, that he's gracious, that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and that he keeps steadfast love for thousands. And then very quickly, we see this transition where he says um, that uh, he forgives um, iniquity and transgression and sin, but won't clear the guilty. And so we might think that there's some kind of a contradiction there. How is it that he's going to forgive sins, but not clear the guilty? Another way maybe of saying clear the guilty is to say um, overlook the guilty. So in other words, the Lord is saying he will forgive sin, but he's not going to overlook it. And it has consequence. And we see that it has consequence not just for those that um, commit the sin, but for the generations following them. 
And so we know that um, he has set up a natural law, that he set up a, uh, a creation, he set up a, a relationship, a, a kind of a creation where we know that there are consequences to our actions. And we know by looking at the world around us and by um, thinking about families and about generations of families that uh, sin is passed down. There is the consequence of sin that's passed down, but there's also the kind of sin that's passed down. And we know that families um, tend to carry sin one generation to the other. And we see that just by casual observation. And so the Lord is saying he's not going to overlook this sin, but that he is going to forgive it when we repent. Repentance means saying, I was going this direction, I recognize that it's wrong. I recognize the consequences that I deserve. I freely admit my guilt. And I desire an amendment of life. I desire a new way. And we turn and discover that new way through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we turn and we walk in a new way. This is when we receive mercy and graciousness. It's when we commit uh, to repentance and when we allow our hearts and minds to be changed. Now, does that mean that there's no more consequences ever? No, of course not. When we um, repent of our sins, there may still be consequences in place. If I step off the, uh, the curb and I get hit by a bus, I can uh, repent of that and I can confess it to the Lord and He will forgive me of it, but I still maybe have broken bones, right, to be repaired. And the Lord will teach me and instruct me how to look where I'm going next time, right? He was going to lead me into righteousness. And so the Lord is saying, I want to enter into relationship with you. I want to give you my name. I want to teach you repentance. I want to teach you my ways so that you can avoid these consequences of sin and you can live with me and everlasting life. And Moses recognizes the predicament that he and the people of Israel are in. He realizes that they're in serious trouble here, that their ability to be able to follow this law is um, very limited, shall we say, right? And so what does he do? He calls upon the Lord and he says in verse 9, If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. And so Moses is saying, we can't do this without you. We can't follow this law. We can't avoid these consequences of sin. We have to have you with us. We have to dwell with you. We have to be in your midst. And, and really this is the whole message of the Exodus story and of the, the wilderness wandering is that the Lord is teaching and instructing us how to live with Him. And so they build the tabernacle and they look for the pillar of fire and of cloud and they learn how to how to look for the Lord, right? To, to look for where He's going and to follow Him. And this is the instruction that they're getting by living in the midst of God, by living and tabernacling with Him. And this comes to a, a new pinnacle, a new pinnacle of, of experience of, of dwelling in the midst when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ comes, when when God becomes man, when He joins His divinity to our humanity, this dwelling with us reaches an apex that um, we could only imagine at the time of the, of the Exodus. God joins His divinity to our humanity, and He's born in our midst, and He lives in our midst, and uh, as He is born, uh, then He fulfills all of the law and the prophets. He fulfills 
everything that the people of God were instructed to do. And you remember that 500 years or so before the time of Moses, Abraham is brought out of Ur. He is a Gentile brought out and he is instructed in how to be in relationship with God, how to be in covenant with him. And you remember that this covenant is sealed by the rite of circumcision. And that the rite of circumcision is a way of the people of God coming into an understanding, a rudimentary understanding, that the flesh is being cut away so that the people of God can perceive and follow the will of God. See, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the stomach, the lusts of the heart are cut away in the flesh in circumcision so that the will of God can be perceived and can be followed. That's what they're being instructed in how to do in the circumcision. And so our Lord and Savior comes and He fulfills everything that the people of God have been taught to do perfectly. And at the day of circumcision, the practice of the ancient Israelites was to name that child. And Jesus Christ is the name given to God become man. Sometimes we hear that name and we think, oh, that's first name, last name. You know, uh, Jesus of the family of Christ. This is not the case. These are both titles. Jesus and Christ are both titles. Jesus is Yeshua, the Savior, the one whom the people call upon for salvation. Right? Yeshua is the name of Joshua, who leads the people out of the wilderness, across the river Jordan, right through the waters of baptism, into the promised land, the land of eternal life. And so Jesus, Yeshua, the, the name that we call on for salvation, is the one who is leading us through baptism, across the river Jordan, into this promised land, into this newness of life. So he is the Savior, the, the, the one who would save. Mashiach, Messiah, or, or Christ in the Greek, is the anointed one, the one who is anointed by God, the one who is set aside to fulfill all the promises that were made to David and to the nation of Israel. He is the one who is going to save them from uh, sin and from the Gentiles and lead them into the kingdom of God, lead them into an eternal kingdom where they will become members of this kingdom. And it's a kind of, of adoption. We, we understand this as a, as a kind of a beautiful adoption story where the, the nations are brought into this relationship where God will be their father and their king and they will learn how to dwell in this kingdom. And so they're instructed in how to live. And of course the most radical understanding of this kingdom relationship of the king and subject is that he gives us his name, a name now that we don't um, use uh, this, this allegorical Lord name for, but who we call by his name. He gives us his name to call, Jesus Christ. And now this isn't a name that we're not supposed to say. This is a name that we're supposed to be saying and calling upon with every breath. And so you can see the beginning of the intimacy that the Lord is creating in this kingdom adoption relationship. He's calling us to, to call upon his name. And he has changed our very nature by joining his divinity to our humanity. Now our nature, the nature of creation itself, has been changed. We have been transformed in the most fundamental way so that we now can receive the Holy Spirit and be transformed with newness of life. So that our hearts and our minds can be changed. And this is enabled through the incarnation, through God becoming man. And so now we are ready 
We are ready to receive the Holy Spirit. We're ready to receive the name of God. We're ready to call upon the name of God. And we're ready to be transformed, to be transformed into these new creatures. And that transformation is through participation. The Lord is not a puppet master. He's not dangling us on a string, right? He isn't um, controlling us. He's not the kind of father that is going to, um, to, to hold us and to, to make us be obedient. He is inviting us into obedience, inviting us into relationship. And for us to, to be invited in, we have to know where it is that our father is leading us. And St. Paul in his letter to the Romans, in the beginning of this letter, begins to teach us, to instruct us in how to enter into this relationship. And the first thing that he wants us to know about it is that it's been told to us. We've been told where it is that we're going. We have to know the, the destination, right? We can't just get into our cars and just start driving, right? We have to know where it is that we're going. We can't just walk into this Christian life and just start saying, well, I'll just try to be good, right? We've got to know our destination. We've got to know who it is that we're being called to be. And the only way to know that is in the reading of Scripture. And St. Paul says, He promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning the Son. So for us to know who the Son is and who we are called to be in him, we have to be reading Scripture. We cannot do this without the daily reading of Scripture. We cannot. But when we read God's Word, we begin to apprehend, we begin to understand, we begin to clearly see the direction in which the Lord is leading us. We begin to understand the nature of Christ and how it is that He's calling us to be transformed. And He transforms us, we read, through the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. So the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is transforming us now through the resurrection and through His dwelling in us. And He's transforming us with grace. Grace is power. Grace is power. And we can receive grace the same way you might think about us receiving electricity, right? I can plug into these outlets, but if I never turn the stereo on, if I never put the record on the turntable, if I never turn it on and I never play it, I can say, well, I'm plugged in. Right? But it takes more than that. For us to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, then we then have to do what? We have to have brought about in us the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. The obedience of faith means that when the Lord calls us to do something, we do it. We do it. See how complex faith is? This is a tough concept, isn't it? The obedience of faith. The Lord calls us to do something and we do it. Do it. And we can only do it through the power of His Holy Spirit when we're waiting upon Him. When we're saying, Lord, I'm not enough. I don't know how. I'm not able. Then it's by His grace, His power, that He would fill us with a clear picture of who we are called to be and how we are to live. And you notice that in Moses on the mountain and the shepherds and the angels in Bethlehem this power and this following is called worship. Worship 
is probably more popular today, I would say, than in any other time in human history. You see more worship going on today, I think, than ever before. We're worshiping uh, entertainers, celebrities. You'll see tens of thousands of people walk in and lift their hands and sing along and dress like the people on the stage and talk like the people on the stage and try to be like the people on the stage and pay hundreds of dollars for the opportunity to do it. If that isn't worship, I don't know what is. We're called to worship only the one and true God because we become like what we worship. Right? The people that worship idols become like them. They become deaf and dumb with no understanding, like stone and rock and wood. And if we would worship an entertainer, we'll become just like them. If we worship the Lord, if we submit to Him, if we follow Him, if we listen to Him, if we give Him praise and honor and glory, if we wait upon Him, then we will be transformed through His grace. He would have us called by His own name, Christians, so that His love and His name would be known everywhere that we go. Throughout this coming year, may our prayer be that when we go into the world, people would not see us, but they would see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that they would see His love and His compassion, and that they would know that His grace is abounding forevermore. Yeah. Yeah.